This week on the Backtable Podcast. Red meats, things like, you know, steak, hamburger, pork, these are a group 2A carcinogen, which means probably causes cancer in humans. And these red meats have been linked with an increased risk of multiple GU cancers, such as prostate cancer and kidney cancer. So definitely reducing or avoiding any of these red and processed meat products would be, you know, an easy and obvious recommendation for prevention of cancer, including GU cancer. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Backtable podcast, your source for all things urology. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and at backtable.com. Now, a quick word from our sponsor. This discussion is brought to you by Vericite, provider of the Decipher Prostate Genomic Classifier. Decipher Prostate is a test for patients with localized prostate cancer that can help personalize treatment. Every patient and their prostate cancer is unique, and Decipher Prostate can provide meaningful insight into the aggressiveness of each individual's patient's tumor. Because the Decipher score is derived solely from the genomic characteristics of the tumor, it provides information not available through already known clinical and pathologic factors. Decipher high-risk patients generally benefit from earlier or intensified treatment, while Decipher low-risk patients may be ideal candidates for monitoring or less overall treatment. Decipher prostate is the most validated gene expression test in localized prostate cancer with level 1 evidence in national clinical practice guidelines and more than 70 peer-reviewed publications, including more than 65,000 patients. Visit vericite.com decipher to learn more. Now, back to the show. This is Aditya Bagrodia as your host this week, and I'm very excited to introduce our guest today, Stacy Loeb from NYU Department of Urology. Welcome to the show, Stacy. How are you doing today? Awesome. So excited to be here. I just love this podcast. Well, thanks, Stacy. When I was kind of exploring topics to discuss with you, you've really got expertise in such a breadth of areas within prostate cancer. And I actually find it to be extremely interesting, fascinating that you've continued your journey of lifelong learning and have actually pursued formal education in lifestyle medicine. Can you tell us a little bit about how that whole process took place? Yeah, absolutely. You know, about four years ago, I just became really into nutrition and physical activity. Our family all adopted plant-based diets and I work out every day at the gym. And so it's just a big part of life. But I really also feel like it's extremely important for basically like all urological conditions these lifestyle factors. So I learned that lifestyle medicine is actually like a medical specialty and that if you're a physician with a different board certification that you can do the required education and then sit for the lifestyle medicine boards. So I thought, you know what, I'm just going to go for it because it would be really great to have formal training in this and be able to offer therapeutic lifestyle interventions for our patients. Yeah, I love that. And I personally believe, in addition to the actual value of the various pillars of lifestyle medicine, which of course we'll get into, the value of empowering patients to do something and take ownership and have some control over their cancer journey instead of things being done to them, told to them, is incredibly, incredibly valuable for patients. 
And I'd almost go as far to say that probably the single most common set of questions pertain to what can I do with respect to diet, exercise, sugars, air, sleep, you name it. So I think this is going to be uh, tremendous. And, you know, as we were kind of planning for this episode, Stacey, we thought about structuring this around prostate cancer, GU cancer, lifestyle and medicine. And and maybe just to keep it somewhat focused, we'll, we'll stick to GU oncology. But I would venture to say that this is actually going to be applicable across both healthy and disease states. Is that fair? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I would venture to say there's probably no condition that we treat in the field of urology that doesn't have some relationship to these issues of lifestyle medicine, you know, things like nutrition and physical activity. I mean, this is fundamental for people with voiding dysfunction. Urinary tract infections could actually be linked to what we eat. There were some new studies this year showing that more than 400,000 UTIs a year in the United States are actually linked to consumption of meat products where the poultry, especially, and to a lesser extent, pork, from the supermarket had like exactly the same E. coli strains that were found in these resistant UTIs. So bottom line, you know, what we put into our body and our lifestyles really have a significant impact on everything from, you know, urinary health, of course, sexual health. That might be the biggest of all. Lifestyle medicine is so closely linked with everything to do with sexual health and certainly cancer. You know, not only, uh, you know, the development of cancer is very tightly linked with many different lifestyle factors, but also for survivorship, these things are extremely important. And, you know, people can really take a hit during cancer survivorship, things like anxiety or sleep. And so we really need to be able to help our patients with these issues. Yeah, I appreciate that. And I have tried to evolve in either providing some more prescriptive counseling or at least directing patients to some usable, useful resources, as opposed to my fairly half-baked, as long as you maintain something kind of moderate and try to exercise and sleep well. And I think patients appreciate that. So maybe just kind of jumping on into it, lifestyle medicine, what is it? Can you tell us about the six pillars? And then we'll start maybe jumping into urology. For sure. So lifestyle medicine is really just, you know, using therapeutic lifestyle modification as a primary modality in the management of chronic conditions, especially things like cardiovascular disease, diabetes, and obesity, as well as conditions like cancer. And yes, as you mentioned, there are six pillars. So this is nutrition is the first pillar, which is a whole foods, predominantly plant-based dietary pattern. And then there's physical activity is the next pillar. Healthy sleep is the third pillar. The fourth is stress management. The fifth is avoidance of toxic substances. So this includes things like smoking, but also actually opioids. So another important topic that we deal with in medicine. And finally, connectedness and positive psychology and the importance of having connections with other people and social support. Well, that's a lot to unpack just right there. So maybe let's dig in a little bit more into nutrition and maybe to keep it somewhat digestible, no pun intended, for cancer, we can talk about prevention and then optimizing cancer outcomes. 
Yeah. So, you know, it's safe to say that what we put into our bodies has a big impact on our risk of cancer. And, you know, not a lot of doctors seem to know this, but processed meat, which includes things like, you know, hot dogs, salami, bacon, these are considered a group one carcinogen by the World Health Organization. So that means definitely causes cancer in humans. It's the same group as smoking, asbestos, things like that. So really nobody should be eating these processed meats because they're known to cause cancer in humans. Red meats, things like, you know, steak, hamburger, pork, these are a group 2A carcinogen, which means probably causes cancer in humans. And these red meats have been linked with an increased risk of multiple GU cancers, such as prostate cancer and kidney cancer. So definitely reducing or avoiding any of these red and processed meat products would be, you know, an easy and obvious recommendation for prevention of cancer, including GU cancer. On the flip side, what we do want to encourage in the diet is more plant-based foods. And, you know, we don't have to be afraid of all carbohydrates. There's some sort of stigma, like carbs are bad, but it's really refined carbohydrates and sugars that are unhealthy. Eating whole grains is very healthy. It doesn't increase the risk of diabetes or cancer. And in fact, these are where you find fiber in the diet, which is very important in cancer prevention, as well as for other things like GI health. So bottom line, the emphasis here with lifestyle medicine is on a whole foods. That's not whole foods, the grocery, but whole unprocessed foods, you know, things that don't come in a plastic package, lots of just fruits and vegetables and whole grains, beans, lentils, these kinds of foods with, you know, minimal to no animal product and uh, mostly plant-based food. So mind blown. And I love the fact that this is not like wishy-washy. It's like, here's where the data kind of exists. So the places that I've lived and trained include Tennessee, include Texas, and more recently, California. If I were to tell a patient here in San Diego that we need to shift towards a plant-based diet, this is a generalization. I can see them kind of wrapping their brain around it in some form or fashion. But if I think about my standard, stereotypical, I'm playing into a stereotype, Texan, who's meat, brisket, all that, five days a week, no meal is complete without a meat. What is a reasonable kind of practical shift towards what you're describing? And maybe I'll ask you to comment specifically on fish as well. Okay, for sure. So everybody has to do what they're able to do. And even making small changes in a favorable direction here can have a big impact. Some of the studies that we've done looking at plant-based dietary patterns in prostate cancer have been in omnivores. So for example, we looked at the health professionals follow-up study, which is a big group of male health professionals out of Harvard University. And even among people who ate some animal products, including meat, the more plant-based they ate and the less of those they ate, the better along the continuum. And so it doesn't have to absolutely be black or white and making small changes can really make a big difference. In terms of fish, that would definitely be the best choice of all the animal-based foods with respect to prostate health or just health in general. 
because in some studies, fish actually can have some beneficial impact in terms of cardiovascular disease and things like that. So if you can't give up all animal products, being essentially vegan plus fish, where you ditch the meat and dairy, but just focus on fish as the animal protein source would certainly be a better choice in terms of health. Now, just one caveat, I think there is some concern about the quality of fish moving forward as compared with fish in studies from days gone by, because farmed fish is really similar to factory farming of land animals. These are like very concentrated fish farms where the fish have to get lots of antibiotics and are very unhealthy. So eating farmed fish is not great, but freshwater fish, there is concern now because of the amount of microplastics and other toxins that are accumulating in the waterways. And so I am a bit concerned that the quality of fish, you know, in the future may not be as healthful as in the past. But yes, for the time being, I would say that that would be the best choice of the animal foods. But why not look to other protein sources? You know, a lot of people don't think about the fact that things like beans are a good source of protein, lentils, things like hummus, nuts. And these things are very healthy for the prostate. And now they have fiber. They don't have any cholesterol. Cholesterol is only found in animal food. Fiber is only found in plant food. So the nutrient profile of these foods is just really quite different. Well, I, I absolutely appreciate that, Stacy. And I will say that growing up in a vegetarian household, the Indian diet, we've managed to find plenty of ways to work in protein. So I think it is it is doable. And clearly there's been a bit of a shift, it seems like, toward more plant-based, less meat-based options that are out there. I think that certainly gives a nice topic introduction, something prescriptive for nutrition. The other big one that I always hear is exercise. 10,000 steps. Maybe I'll just throw that out there as a launch point. Great. Yes. And, you know, physical activity is very important. And this can include, you know, exercise, like purposeful physical activity, you know, going to the gym, things like that, as well as just being more physically active in your daily tasks. Sometimes they say like sitting is the new smoking, you know, and really like you want to avoid prolonged sitting. And I'm guilty. You know, I sometimes sit at my desk all day and I'm working on research and, and just, you know, hunched over a computer like that is not good. Even using a standing desk, getting up and walking around for short intervals, you know, park far away, take the staircase, like all of these things make a difference. But in terms of the amount of exercise that somebody should be getting, really what's most important is the physical activity guidelines for Americans. And I actually think this is something that all doctors should be familiar with because it's just, you know, it's published, it's out there. So Americans are supposed to get 150 minutes per week, at least, of moderate intensity physical activity or 75 minutes a week of vigorous intensity physical activity and should do at least two sessions a week of some kind of resistance training. And so these are really like the minimums that are set by the physical activity guidelines for Americans. And this applies to adults with cancer, without cancer, you know, really everybody. So it's definitely something to work towards for anybody who is not meeting the physical activity guidelines. Yeah, and it's it's pretty easy to kind of think that as you're approaching surgery for 
instance that being as fit as possible makes a lot of sense. Advanced prostate cancer, androgen deprivation therapy, mitigating the effects of those makes a lot of sense. And I, again, personally find it to be very helpful to hear these prescriptive recs. You know, we're talking about an hour and 15 minutes of intensive exercise or two and a half hours of moderate intensity exercise in a given week. I think these are obtainable goals that aren't so often left field and incompatible with anybody's, you know, typical week or weekly structure that that they can actually pull it off. And I think you're right. Like there is really at every point of the journey, you know, this is helpful and important. There's this whole concept nowadays of like prehabilitation, you know, and getting ready before you're going to have surgery or other treatments. So your body's in the best possible shape. And that is just so important. But for sure, you know, during survivorship, this is really critical for prostate cancer. For example, there is a meta-analysis showing that physical activity was associated with better quality of life, you know, less fatigue, better physical fitness. And especially like you mentioned, for people who are on hormones, you know, they really need that resistance training to help with their bone density and doing physical activity can really help with the fatigue in these patients. So that would be, you know, an especially important case uh, where physical activity is really critical. So I'm going to ask you a question. Sometimes I feel like it's so impactful for a patient if you tell them, if you do this, you can expect that, or the rates of this will improve if it's something positive, like cancer-specific survival, or if you do this or avoid this, the rates of something bad, like a surgical complication may go down. Can you give me something in that general arena of, say, a prostate cancer patient, if they're able to engage in, you know, two and a half hours of moderately intense activity or 75 minutes of intense activity, how that could benefit them? If they engage in this activity, they will feel better. There is a lot of evidence supporting the links between physical activity with well-being and more energy and better mood. So actually, it even links in with some of these other pillars of lifestyle medicine, uh, like stress management. For me personally, exercise is a critical part of stress management. There's really nothing better coming home from a tough day than, you know, just pounding it out on the pavement, you know, going running. So I just can't even state how critical that is. Right. And I think at a global level, there's your risk of mitigating heart disease and hyperlipidemia and things along those lines. My understanding is that improved resting heart rates, kind of a decreased inflammatory condition because of exercise can actually impact cancer outcomes as well. I think that's been shown in bladder to some extent. Am I recalling correctly? Yeah, for sure. I mean, the thing is, many of our patients, especially with prostate cancer, are not going to die from their prostate cancer especially, you know, patients on active surveillance, patients with favorable prostate cancers, they are more than 10 times more likely to die from cardiovascular disease than from prostate cancer. So this is just such an important teachable moment. We really have been given a gift and these patients are really receptive. Like you said, every single day patients ask about diet and exercise and things like that. So they're interested and they want to be engaged in proactive behavior. So we need to take this opportunity and help them. And especially if they're not going to die from their cancer, 
We want them to live their best life with cancer and their longest life. Yeah, I appreciate that. And, you know, it was actually a conversation that I had with Rich Machulowitz and Christian Fankhauser on smoking and smoking cessation. And one of the things that I learned over the course of that podcast is that even quitting smoking two weeks prior to a TURBT, for instance, can massively impact your your risk of complications. So I always try to like provide these tidbits, this guidance in the context of like, this is concretely how you may benefit. And maybe we can dovetail a little bit into toxin avoidance and, you know, how you engage and bring this counseling in, in terms of, you know, realizable outcomes for a patient. Yeah, that's a great segue. And, you know, for sure, I mean, smoking is a big risk factor for really all the urological cancers that we see. It increases the risk of developing these cancers. It increases the risk of cancer progression. So we definitely want people to avoid smoking or to quit smoking. And, you know, the good news is that even physicians having a brief conversation with patients about this, even at conversation less than three minutes, has still been associated with an increased chance of the patient quitting. So even if you don't have a lot of time to dedicate to this, Smoking is a very chronic and relapsing condition, and just repeatedly bringing it up, even for short periods of time, can make a big difference. And and if you if you aren't comfortable with you know helping patients with smoking cessation, then referring them to somebody who can or calling the quit line can be some options. And then you know same with other substances, you know screening for the amount of alcohol intake. You know, the U.S. dietary guidelines recommend no more than two drinks per day for men and no more than one drink per day for women. So that is really, you know, what the U.S. dietary guidelines recommend. But, you know, most of all, we'd be concerned about problematic levels of drinking. And this can be tied with some of the other problems that we see because it can be linked with problems with sleep problems with mood disorders and mental health. So really, these all tie together. These are things that we should be asking our patients about and providing referrals if we're, you know, taking note of any concerning behaviors. And then the other substance that is discussed a lot in lifestyle medicine is opioids. Now, thankfully, I think this has gotten a lot of attention recently in urology. And, you know, most urologists that I know have made a, a huge effort to, you know, reduce the amount of opioids that we're giving because, you know, things like just one surgical event with an opioid prescription can increase the risk of opioid dependence. So I think it's important that we, you know, stay focused on that as well. Absolutely. Not to totally go off hilter here, but I just recently read Demon Copperhead and growing up in East Tennessee, just the kind of profound impact of the opioid epidemic and pandemic was just mind-blowing again. So I typically tell patients this is obviously, a, or it can be, a tumultuous time. And people ask, is it okay if I have a glass of wine? I'll generally say yes. I think what I'm hearing is that's that's okay as long as it's not in the context of kind of substance abuse land or maybe coupled with other dangerous or reckless behaviors. And I did want to touch a little bit, you mentioned it, sleep, sleep hygiene. I think this is one that, you know, for myself personally is I hear it, I hear the terms, but I haven't really dug into what exactly it means. Can, can you kind of share a little bit, Stacey? Yeah, for sure. Sleep is a real tough one. 
I think it's tough for many of us as physicians. It's definitely tough for our patients. This has been a little bit of a pet topic of mine the past few years, just because it seemed like nobody was really paying much attention to it in urologic oncology, and I just didn't really know why. So we did a survey of patients with prostate cancer, and literally half of them reported poor quality sleep, and over one-third were at high risk for sleep apnea. But we're not actually diagnosed with it, so I think we're under-diagnosing these conditions. So then we thought, well, that's interesting. You know, I wonder how that affects their bed partners, because if your partner is awake all night or keeps waking up. So we did a survey of the caregivers of patients with prostate cancer who were primarily, you know, spouses, long-term partners, and they actually reported like over 75% with poor quality sleep. And both groups reported high rates of hypnotic sleeping medications, which was really concerning because a lot of these sleeping medications, these prescription sleep medications, even have black box warnings, like for sleepwalking and other dangerous behaviors. Uh, So I think that we're not doing everything we can to screen people for sleeping problems. And, you know, other GU cancers, the same thing. I just finished a collaboration with some colleagues at UCSF where we looked at um, non-muscle invasive bladder cancer. And these patients also, like more than 60% of them reported poor quality sleep. And the ones who reported worse quality of sleep was associated with worse quality of life. Not surprising, right? I mean, if you're not getting any sleep, you just feel like lousy. So it's a tough one. It's very pervasive. So then you were asking, so what do we do? And what is sleep hygiene? Sleep hygiene is like the behaviors that we can do to help with our sleep. And so it's just, you know, really like going back to basics, like you want to go to bed and wake up around the same time every day. And so this kind of like weekend warrior phenomenon kind of thing, like sleeping in on the weekend to make up for a sleep deficit during the week, that's really not ideal. And light is a very important part of our circadian rhythms. So you really want bright light exposure in the morning. You know, the best thing is to like wake up and take a walk outside in the bright sunlight. Unless we're getting to work so early that the sun hasn't even come up yet. But, you know, bright light in the morning, but not at night. So the last thing you want to do is be staring at your screens and doing work stuff right before bed. You know, ideally you want a buffer period between your work day and stressful activities and really a time to start relaxation before you're going to sleep where you're not having all this light exposure and activities that are causing stress for you, but really something relaxing, you know, hot shower, reading, you know, whatever it may be. Some people even like to do some kind of meditation in the evening before bed, whatever is really going to help with relaxation. And, you know, like you don't want to eat or drink a lot right before bedtime. And this is the kind of stuff that we talk to patients about. You know, somebody's complaining of nocturia and we ask them, what are you eating and drinking at night? Oh, like I have a couple cups of tea while I'm watching TV in the evening. Okay, well, you know, what goes in is going to come out, right? So I think we have to think of these things for ourselves, too, and making sure that all these fluids and especially things with caffeine are really, you know, shifted earlier in the day so that we're not shooting ourselves in the foot. Yeah, I love it. And um, 
I think it's hard to do the screen time and so forth. My wife and I, it's January 22nd. As a part of our New Year's resolution, we decided that we're going to try to do screen free time from 6 to 8 p.m. We have two relatively small children. And it's been amazing for, I think, every element of our lives, to be quite frank, you know, interacting with our kids, giving them the attention they need, not having that kind of influx of information as we're kind of winding down. So I kind of drank the Kool-Aid on that one, if you will. And overall, I got to say, I feel about a thousand times better. And maybe that kind of takes us into social connections and stress management. I think this trying to disengage a little bit from the hustle and bustle of life has been very, very valuable. And when you talk to patients about sleep hygiene, my sense is that everybody's kind of sleep requirements are a bit different. Can you talk about like a individual counseling prescriptive program the way you see it, Stacey? Yeah, I mean, definitely, you know, you want to aim somewhere like in the seven to nine hours of sleep range and just trying to figure out what somebody's issue is. Are they having trouble with insomnia? Have they optimized their sleep environment? You know, are they doing some of those tips I mentioned earlier? Is their bedroom comfortable? You know, if it's too hot, too cold, too noisy, there's light coming in. I mean, there's a lot of things we could do to change the sleep environment. Also, you know, stimulus control, like the bed is supposed to be for sleeping and sex. So if you're doing work or other things in the bed, it causes these other associations with the bed. So the bed is for sleeping and sex, you know, and then ruling out other kinds of sleep disorders. You know, like I mentioned in our survey, more than a third of the patients with prostate cancer were at high risk for sleep apnea. And this is a condition that has, you know, morbidity and potential mortality, not to mention sleep apnea is associated with things like erectile dysfunction. So it's the last thing that we want to just leave unaddressed. And, you know, the sad thing is many hospitals for patients who are having surgery, the anesthesia actually assess sleep apnea risk as part of the assessment of the patient preoperatively. And that can kind of help with their risk stratification for the surgical event but often nothing is actually done with that information afterwards. So in my opinion, that should trigger an automatic referral to a sleep specialist if somebody is found to be at high risk for sleep apnea. And if you think about the stop bang, it's like this eight criteria, you know, that assess the risk of sleep apnea. And two of the eight are being male and being over 50. And so you're already starting off with two points on there. So if you have any of the other issues like, you know, observe snoring or a large neck size or, you know, high blood pressure, you're automatically increasing the risk. So these are really easy screening tools that many of our patients are already having done by the anesthesiologist anyway. And so the best thing that we could do for that patient to reduce their morbidity and mortality is to refer them to a sleep specialist. I think it's incredibly valuable. And of course, the association between sleep apnea and nocturia can be overstated. And you know what that does to any given person's sleep. I mean, I kind of think about speaking to patients and they're urinating five to six times a day and what that might look like for me in terms of overall restfulness. And just to take it um, one step beyond, I have a colleague here. He's an APP, uh, Nermaya Castaño. I love it when he sees the patients preoperatively. If there are any risk factors, even an extensive history of nocturia, he'll just arrange an at-home 
sleep apnea assessment, you know, this isn't 20 years ago where you have to go in and get a consultation to pulmonary sleep medicine, spend a night in a sleep lab, and it's a whole to-do. You know, we're in the generation and time of giving some ownership and autonomy to patients' orders. You know, here's a prescription kit, take it home, get your assessment, and then if you screen positive, by all means, have you see the appropriate folks. Yeah, that's amazing. I definitely think that there's just so much we can do here. And it's almost like sleep apnea is like the under-recognized like monster that's behind so many of these urologic conditions. Because, you know, a lot of the things that we see are linked with hypoxia. And this is a condition that involves hypoxia. You know, hypoxia is involved in kidney cancer. Hypoxia is bad for the cavernosal tissue or the erection tissue in the penis. You know, this is not good for the urological health and it's not good for the patient's health. And so I think we can really help in this arena. Well, Stacy, it seems like it, you have expertise and kind of large data. I can just imagine the next project being a group of folks with Apple Watches where they have their resting heart rates, their sleep health, whatever that means, and their baseline O2 sets and affiliating that and associating that with health or lack of health in any of these different domains. You know, the folks at Mayo did where they look at their resting heart rates and they predict cardiac events with, you know, tremendous accuracy. So I wouldn't be surprised if this is where things are heading in the next 10, 15 years. What do you think? Let's do it. I'm ready. So, you know, the first one we talked about nutrition, you provided some great recs moving towards a plant-based diet. It doesn't have to be all or none. I love that physical activity. Again, two and a half hours, moderate intensity, an hour and 15 minutes of high intensity sleep, seven to nine hours per day. Try to really protect the bed as a place for sleep and sexual activity, minimize distraction, stimulants, toxins, don't smoke, drink moderately. There's recommendations, opioids, really, really need to be careful. Then the last two elements of lifestyle medicine, social connections and stress management, these seem a little bit more abstract, multidimensional, tougher to prescribe prescriptive recs on. So how does this how does this actually look when you're talking to a patient? Yeah, so great question. You know, I think these two are really, really important for our patients. You know, I'm sure you've seen some of these really scary studies that even patients diagnosed with low risk prostate cancer have a higher risk of suicide. You know, our patients, many of them are really quite anxious over their cancer diagnosis. And things like anxiety are also linked with some of these benign urologic conditions like sexual health can involve a lot of anxiety. And so I think this is something that we want to assess in our patients. And there's really brief screening tools like the Generalized Anxiety Disorder 2 screening tools, just like two quick questions about in the last two weeks you know, whether you've been feeling anxious, but not been able to stop worrying, things like that. Bottom line, I think there are some things that people can do. And some of them are the things that we've talked about already. You know, physical activity can definitely be great for reducing anxiety, improving mood. Actually, nutrition can improve mood. There are studies showing that consuming more fruits and vegetables, for example, is associated with better mood the next day. So these are all really closely linked together. Things like mindfulness, meditation, yoga, 
any of these activities can be helpful for anxiety. There are definitely studies of this in patients with prostate cancer and benefits from participating in these activities. In fact, there was this randomized controlled trial by Dean Ornish that was conducted at UCSF several years ago, and these were patients on active surveillance for prostate cancer, and they were randomized to a lifestyle modification, literally based on these pillars, where they did a vegan diet, physical activity, mindfulness, and social connectedness compared to a control group. And the group who did this, you know, diet and lifestyle modification, they had less progression during active surveillance, but importantly, many other health benefits. I mean, their cholesterol plummeted, you know, they had a lot of benefits from participating. So, you know, I think it's hard to separate these out. And, you know, you often get these questions like, which is more important, you know, diet or exercise or stress or sleep? And they're all important. On your podcast with Gio Espinosa, he said that's like asking me, you know, which of his three children is his favorite child? And you just can't say that. But the lifestyle medicine approach would say that the most important to work on right now is the one that the patient feels motivated and has self-efficacy or feels like they're ready to work on. So while they're all important, there may be one that the patient feels like in the here and now, this one is something that I'm ready to work on. And so that's what we're going to do first. So that is the way that we that we look at that. You know, and then the positive psychology and connectedness, you know, all of us need to have social connections to thrive. And there have been some big studies out of Harvard showing that social connections is, in fact, one of the strongest predictors of happiness and longevity. And so one of the interesting things that you mentioned earlier was about this, you know, new goal that you and your wife had set about reducing screen time for a couple hours to really be present. And that is really what it's all about. You know, and and I'm a big fan of social media, you know, as much as the next person. But you really have to have some in-person connections. It can't just all be through social media. And in fact, excessive use of social media is can be associated with depression and with lower well-being, Um, especially if it's right before bedtime. It can also interfere with sleep. So having these in-person social connections. So what does that look like in terms of a prescription for our patients? Helping them to find support groups with other people. Or it maybe it's a spiritual group, you know, maybe something at their church or their religious institution that gives them a sense of community. Or it could be linked in with some of the other pillars of lifestyle medicine. Maybe joining a group fitness program would be a way to connect with other people and also help with this common goal and promoting a healthy lifestyle. So whatever it is that you feel that you need support for in your life, there's many different groups, whether it's a support group for other people with the disease or a group of people who share a spiritual connection or are pursuing the same kind of activity goal. But, you know, there's lots of groups out there for older adults to participate together in physical activity. So I think just figuring out with our patients, you know, what they need and what is going to give them the support. There's been a lot of studies showing that uh, patients with prostate cancer who are single, that is, you know, they don't have a partner, have significantly worse outcomes with prostate cancer. So this concept of having support really is important. 
But, you know, if you don't have a partner, there's so many other places and people where you can still get support. I believe it. We recently um, conducted a study of testicular cancer survivors within the uh, VA system and looked at anxiety, depression, and suicidality. And one of the biggest drivers was actually married single divorce status, which which I can kind of see as making sense. And absolutely, there's going to be people that are single, divorced, lost a spouse, you name it. I think there's tremendous opportunity to get out there and engage. And sometimes I feel like awareness is so impactful, like even just telling a patient that it's important that you, you know, really try to identify and develop social connections, a support network, because it seems obvious, but maybe hearing it, that this could be overall beneficial to your health by having support, whatever that looks like to any given person for their overall longevity and also for managing their cancer. Well, on the one hand, it seems so simple, of course, but on the other hand, it's incredibly complex and I'm sure half of medical professionals would be fortunately out of business if we had really excellent kind of preventative lifestyle medicine aspects in place. So congrats on, you know, really taking a deep dive, Stacy. I will absolutely be providing this podcast to my patients since it is tough to really cover all of this in, you know, a 60-minute podcast, much less a 15-minute lecture. But as we kind of come on an hour, just any parting thoughts for the listenership and maybe both for providers and patients as we conclude? Well, you know, I think you want to move more, sleep well, eat more plants, find ways to reduce your stress find meaningful connections with other people. It's really a pretty simple message, but it's great that there's so much that we can do that really helps for for cancer and for our overall well-being. Well, thank you, Stacey. Um, I learned a ton. I've got plenty to take back to my patients and, and to the trainees, so appreciate your time and uh, look forward to more in the future. For sure. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at underscore Backtable on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable is hosted by Aditya Bagrodia and Jose Silva. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon with support from Josh McWhirter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, Josh Spencer. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. Social media and PR by Chi Ding. Administrative support provided by Jim Lee Kinnebrew. Thanks again for listening and see you next week. Thank you.